Good morning. Um, I, I will apologize right out front because um, my son had the audacity to give me a cold. And the coughing spouts come on rather unannounced. So I, I escaped any kinds of catastrophic events in the first service. I cannot guarantee that in the second. So if it does, just ignore me. And once I gain my composure, then we'll continue on. Okay, deal? Yes, excellent, excellent. Uh, okay, so you look on the screen behind me and you see right giving. And I'm guessing that you feel like I felt when I was in the shark cage. Right? Okay, so a couple of, couple of years after Ashley and I got married, maybe around 2008 or so, um, we went to Hawaii. And one of the things I wanted to do was go on a shark cage adventure. And where they take you out into the ocean, they plop you in a cage, they throw shark food into the water, and then the sharks come around. Which is a really awesome experience. Ashley wasn't so sold. I was. She had to come along. Huh. It's just the way that it went, right? This one flesh thing. Yeah, I, I'm winning at life. <laughs> so um, the thing is, is that I'm a young, dumb guy. So I'm having a conversation with my buddies before we go, and we decided that they would pay for my lunch if I touched a shark, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my goal is to get in the cage, find a shark, touch it, if Ashley can verify it, then they will buy me lunch. I sign up. I'm like, this is an awesome idea, right? Right. So we go onto this boat. We get into the water. There's, there's the cage right beside the boat. And before we start anything, the guy who's leading kind of takes out this waiver form and gives it all to us. And then he starts his little speech. And he goes, so I'm certain that there is someone on this boat who thinks they're going to touch a shark. <laughs> How did you know? I would just like to let you know that we throw food in the water that is about the size of your hand. And you're going to want to touch that shark, and that shark is going to take your hand off. So keep your hands inside the cage. Like, I'm sold. So you get in the water, but you know how your body floats? So it's just like these, these bars, right? And so your legs want to go up or this way or whatever. You become ultra aware of where all of your limbs are as these sharks are swimming around, right? Like you're holding onto the bars, kind of looking. It's super cool. They kind of come out of nowhere. Some of them got like bites out of them. It's really an interesting experience. But you are ultra conscious about where, where your limbs are. Like, are my feet coming out? Ooh, no, no, no. Okay, this way, right? You're trying to figure it out. As soon as we talk about giving, that's how we feel. Like we have just entered a timeshare sales pitch, right? Right. I did one of those too. That was way less pleasant. Way less pleasant. It wasn't worth the free stuff at the end. At the same time though, we kind of get the wealthy side of this, don't we? That we live in a culture that is incredibly well-off compared to those around us. In 1976, there was a term that was coined for corporations. It was called the golden handcuffs. 
And, and what it was is it was a way for employers to ensure that the employees that they paid the most, the ones that were the most difficult to get, were tethered to their business. They called it the golden handcuffs in that you had to work so-and-so long in this location in order to get that benefit. Or you got a benefit in advance but had to pay it back if you left before a certain time. This is the way to make sure that those highly skilled, highly compensated employees that you invest a ton of time and energy into are shackled to your business. And over time, that actually has become uh, a term that's been used in, in the consumer world. It's not just about keeping employees with their companies. It's about keeping consumers with our products. See, those commentators on capitalism would say that actually the golden handcuffs now are a, a, a way in which companies keep their consumers tied. And it started with clever ads and things that were, oh, you need this. And, you know, you really didn't need it, but you kind of felt like it. And then it was, well... You're nobody if you don't have this. And when that didn't work, well, now we need to think about social justice causes to keep you on our brand. So if you happen to be for racial equality, which all of us should be, um, you should buy Nike because they have Colin Kaepernick, right? Or if you're about the environment, you should only drink Budweiser. Am I allowed to say that on this stage? I, I, I don't know, maybe. We're a minute, I don't Okay. Because they power all of their plants with wind energy. Or, if you want to preserve masculinity in the way that it should be, you should, you should buy Gillette products because they're against toxic masculinity, right? Anything and everything to keep the golden handcuffs on. And so when we talk about giving, when we talk about reversing our thinking about the things that we have and the jobs that we participate in and the comfort that we experience, we get uncomfortable. We feel like we are in a timeshare pitch or a shark cage. The interesting thing is, is that this Corinthian church, which we're looking at here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, was in a similar circumstance of affluence, an ability to do what they wanted with the resources that they had. They weren't poor and scraping by. They had what they needed and more. And Paul is encouraging them to change their worldview so that they can free themselves from these golden handcuffs and understand the world and understand what we've been given from God's perspective. So when we talk about right giving, what are the criteria? What is the list of things that we should be thinking about as we give? Where we give? To whom we give? And I think Paul talks about five of them. He'll talk about being generous. He'll talk about being cheerful. He'll talk about being trusting about seeking to glorify God and ultimately about being rightly motivated. But first, let's read the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 to 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Did you catch the five I talked about? Generous, cheerful, trusting, glorifying, and rightly motivated? Well, let's start with the first one. Right giving is generous giving. Verse 6 says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I think this makes sense in our culture it's not much different. I mean, if you are, happen to be a farmer here in Chilliwack, this makes sense. You don't keep half of your seed in the barn if you want to have a full field. You take the seed that you have and you scatter it on the field so that you can have a bountiful harvest. A fool thinks if I plant half my seed, I'll get double the harvest. You plant the seed appropriate for your field so that you get the harvest that you require. If you take one bag and sow one bag of seed, you will get one bag of harvest. This is not a hard concept. We, we can apply this elsewhere too, though. I mean, if you want to get fit and you decide, I want to spend 15 minutes a week getting fit, you're going to reap 15 minutes worth of benefit. If, on the other hand, you spend five days a week working hard at it, you can expect to get results. What you sow, you will also reap. This works with our studies, with our work, with our families. The time and effort and value we put in will result in what comes out. Paul's saying that this is how our giving should look. You see, if, if you give sparingly from the crumbs that fall off of the table, you should not expect feasts. However, if you give in abundance with open hands and open arms and open heart, you should expect abundance. And this is not 
just a concept that Paul is using to manipulate the Corinthians. This is something that God uses throughout the Old Testament, particularly Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Paul's assumption to the Corinthian church is, look, you have been given lots, and if you give lots, you will benefit lots. This is a zero-sum kind of game for Paul. It's not as if we need to be a cul-de-sac that, that hoards everything that is given to us and maybe just let a little trickle out. Instead, Paul says we should be like conduits in which we have lots given and therefore lots should be going out the other direction. A right giver is a generous giver. He's not only generous, he's also cheerful. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? A cheerful giver one who is happy to part with dollars or material possessions or time or energy, is joyful to give what they have, that's weird. But you see, Paul's very clear that our giving shouldn't come from guilt shouldn't come because we feel this weight of, oh, I have to do this. I ought to do this. No, no, no. Paul's saying, no, you shouldn't. You should not be giving out of reluctance, as if you're holding something so tightly, and the only reason that you're letting it go is because someone gave you such a compelling argument and made you feel so guilty or so bad that you're like, fine. Paul's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be looking at the circumstances that are terrible and waiting for, for the guilt to set in. That's not what a right giver does. But he's also not coerced. There is a large movement in churches which says something like, you want to be blessed? You want that Ferrari? When the offering comes around, give us your money. Then you'll be blessed. People are like, whoa, oh no. If my faith, if, if my faith is good, then maybe, maybe I would get that Ferrari. Oh no, maybe I would get that house or that I, my, I would be healed or whatever. I, I've got to be faithful. And so now, now they're giving out of coercion. 
Someone has manipulated their mind into thinking that this will get them something. Or that somehow this makes them good or right or, or uh, holy in some way. That they will get something out of it. And Paul's saying, no, don't, don't give out of guilt. Don't give because someone has coerced you, manipulated you, made you feel bad about something. But give from joy. Give from cheerfulness. But did you notice the first part? What he has discerned in his own heart? This is, this is also an intentioned cheerfulness. This is a weighing, what do I really need? What do I really want? What is superfluous, what is necessary. See, Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to understand that what they're doing is partnering in something. So our hearts should be excited about the thing we're giving to. It shouldn't be a thing of where, you know, the, the, the obligatory mail comes in and we get this thing, we go open it with like, oh, a little bit of fear and trembling. You go, oh, yeah, I got to do that. Do I have enough money in my savings to do? Okay, maybe, maybe if we do this, I don't know. We were planning on this trip. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. This, this, is, this is how it should be. It, it should be a matter of being. I, I, get, I get to be involved here. Have you seen what God is doing through this organization? I get to throw my resources behind this thing that's happening. I, I, get, I get to spend my energy and my time thinking about what is happening here. Do you, do you see what God's doing? God's changing lives. He's feeding the poor. He's seeing people come to know him. He's restoring families. I'm excited about this. I'm behind this, not only with my dollars, but with my heart as well with my time and energy and prayer. See, he's not, he's not asking the Corinthian church simply to write a check. He's saying you need to discern in your heart, where is God leading you? Is your heart joyful in the thing that you are partnering in? Are you seeing fruit and are you excited about it? God loves a cheerful giver. This is not a new concept. Again, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, just after the Israelites had spent 400 years in slavery and they had taken some things as they left from Egypt and God gives them the law at Mount Sinai, and then he tells them how he's going to build his tabernacle. He says, this is going to be built out of gold, and that's going to be built out of silver, and that's going to be built out of bronze, and we need this purple fabric, and we need this many clasps here, and we need this kind of wood here. Then he says to Moses in Exodus 25, verse 1 and 2, he says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. See, even in that circumstance, God is asking, are, is your heart aligned with me? Do you want to build a place of worship? 
We just came out of difficulty and darkness, but unless your heart is in it, keep that gold, keep that silver, because it doesn't mean anything to me. What matters is your heart, Israel. Does your heart move you to come in line with what God is doing? This is the same thing that God says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, 10, and 11, when he's talking about the poor among them. He says, you shall give to the poor freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this is the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. That your heart shall not be grudging. See, God's, God's purpose in this generosity isn't what our culture says. Let's eradicate poverty. Let's change global warming or whatever the cause is. It's about aligning our hearts with what God is doing and holding our hands open with what we have and cheerfully being able to participate in God's work. Are, are, are you a cheerful giver? Or, or do you give from obligation? Does your heart overflow with the joy that you get to participate in what God is doing? In the missionaries that are in Burundi? Or the Cyrus Center here? Or the Ed Center? Are you excited about what God is doing through you as you give some money to that homeless person on the road? Is your heart full of joy as you participate with generosity? Third, third though, right giving is, is trusting giving. Verse 8, and eight, 8 through 10. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower, you, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You know, you, you notice how many times Paul uses all? All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, all works. He who supplies will supply all grace, all sufficiency, all time, all works. This is an all-encompassing understanding of what God provides for us in our lives. 
But this is utterly counter to our thinking today. This moves directly against how we see the world today. We see that we have accomplished, that we make the path, that we provide, that we decide, we work, we spend, we think. We determine our own future. It's us. See, I put a resume together that wowed somebody here enough to have me hired. I did the right things at the right time so that I could be here doing this. And most of you are thinking, why would he ever want to do that? Right? I sometimes think that too. Oh. I don't know if I should have said that. Oops. Um, but th- but th- this, is, this, is, this is the reality. We get up every morning and we make conscious decisions to be disciplined in our lives, to do the exercise that we want so that our bodies do not fail. We read the books that we're supposed to read so that we can get ahead in our careers. We save so that we can have a future. We build into our children so that we can have a particular kind of child at the end of it. Now, what's the success rate on that? So far, I'm like zero for three. No, maybe two for three. Ashley is three for three. But we, we think, we act, we believe that what happens is it's us. And, and, and what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians is no, 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 no. It is God who provides. It is God who gives the energy. It is God who gives the time and the resources and the capacity to do the good works that you have been called to do. You see, when we start to think about how difficult or how intricate it is that we stand where we stand with the stuff that we have, we start to realize how important it is that God be involved. At those connections that I didn't make, but I benefited from. When I think I've planned it all and something else comes up and yet somehow, miraculously, it does not affect the alt-end goal. And when things are laid to waste and I still end up on top, I have the audacity to say, ah, yes, I'm just super resilient. But Paul's worldview is different. God supplies all. He gives all. So we should trust him in that. But that means that we have to trust that he's actually going to be faithful in doing that, right? Not only believe that that is how the world actually works, but then once we are there is to say, no, 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 I need to trust that God who says he will supply all that I have or all that I need so that I can give freely. I need to trust his word, don't I? I, don't need, I need to see him as faithful and good. So that when he says, if you sow generously, you will reap generously, 
that I can hold on to that. I have to trust God in that because we are not dealing with small things. Jimmy and Laura Siebert are a pastoral couple in uh, Houston, Texas. They, they uh, lead a small church down there. And as they started to read the scriptures and, and teach on generosity, they discovered that their life was really not being uh, lived as God had intended. So they, they came to the conviction that what they need to do is they need to decide what do we need. And they decided well, for them and their five kids, this is what they needed. They needed food to eat, and a place to sleep. The rest they were going to give away. Now, some of us financial planners here are like, but what about their retirement? What about a sick day? What happens if he goes to work and gets in a car accident? Or one of their kids comes down with cancer and they need to go to the hospital. What about those things? See, but they, they, they trusted God. They said, I, I believe God that when he says that he will give us, when we are generous, we will trust him. And they have not wanted for anything. Their children have not wanted for anything. Do they have a retirement plan? No. Does that make some of us uneasy? Yes. But they trust God. Or maybe, maybe it's not money. Rachel and Mike Erkman were uh, real estate um, kind of... Uh, Managers, they manage commercial real estate properties, and one of their employees' husbands was dying of a, a, a liver issue, a genetic disease that attacked his liver. And um, when they first met, Rachel thought to herself, I, 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 need, to, I need to give my liver to, to this man so that he has more years with his children. So he went home, or she went home to her husband and said, um, uh, listen, Mike, I, I really feel God telling me that you know, we, we've been being generous with our money and our business, but I need to be generous with my body. Now, do you know what that means? That means that when I go into surgery, I might not come out. You need to be okay with the fact that maybe, just maybe, you will raise our three young children without a mother. Will we trust God in this? And they did. That man now has another 10 years with his kids because of that radical generosity. And she, she made it. Surgery went well. Everything is good. But they were willing to lay on the line everything. Because they trusted God's promise. Right giving is a trusting giving. Fourthly, though, it's a, it's a glorifying giving. It's, it's not only generous and cheerful and trusting, but it is in a particular direction. 
Verse 11 and 12 say, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only to supply the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. See, Paul's vision is he's asking the Corinthian church to take out of their own wallets so that the people in Jerusalem who are suffering right now and don't have enough to eat, his vision is not simply meeting the needs of those in Jerusalem, but seeing that God is glorified and thanked because of it. It's almost as if the, the, the alleviation of suffering is secondary. Yes, yes, the people will be fed. The poor will be clothed. The orphans will be adopted. And those are good things. But you know what's better? God is glorified. Because those that are helped turn not to those who gave, but to God. And say, thank you, Father, for sending someone with an open heart and open hands to give me what they had that I don't deserve. Right giving is a oriented giving towards God's glory, God's thanking, God's expanding. This matters. It should inform where we give and how we give. This is not an uninformed, unpurposed giving. This is not simply seeing a need and meeting it to meet the need's sake. It is about participating in what God is doing with open hands so that he is glorified. So then, this will inform where we give. See, Paul in this particular space is saying to the saints, to the church in Jerusalem. In First uh, John chapter 3, verse 17, and James chapter 2, verse 15, in both of those circumstances, when those writers are talking about helping the poor, they're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a directioned giving. Because those brothers and sisters in Christ would understand that that giving is not done from the person who gave, but was actually a work of the heart enacted by God for their good and would then cause them to worship God and be generous as well. That's why Paul can look to the Macedonians and say, look, they were under incredible hardship and yet they gave generously because they knew where their provision came from. They begged to be a part of the work of God because they knew where their provision came from. See, the direction of our giving is important. Do you evaluate that? When you give to Compassion Canada or uh, Vision International or whichever organization you give to, whether it's locally, internationally, whether it's a church or a parachurch organization, do you evaluate what is it doing? Yes, it might be doing good work on the ground, but is it resulting or is the purpose to bring glory to God? Or is it simply to bring water to people? As good as that is, 
Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to understand that their, that their giving is not only purposed to provide the needs, but to bring glory to God. Second, though, is how we give. See, if, if our gifts that we give from what we have been given are given so that we get the benefit, we've missed it. That's why Jesus says, when, when you give, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Did I get that right? I think so. Right hand, left hand, yeah. Okay. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Why? Because it's not about you. It's not about bringing glory to you, making your heart feel puffed up, making your head feel puffed up, being able to say to your neighbor, oh yeah, I, I helped support that well, or you know, I really gave to that organization, or yeah, I was over there doing that. It's not for you and your tax benefits to make sure that you get enough back from the government because you don't want the government to have anything. Those are all wonderful things, I guess, but the result is such that God is glorified. And when we make it about us, we actually take away from who should be glorified. Should we not? It, does that not happen? My, my, my uncle is, a, is an incredible example. He, he wants to teach his, his sons how to be generous. So what he does with them on a, on a regular basis is he takes them with a, a $100 bill. He gives them the $100 bill. And then he tells them, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go up to the cashier. They choose any restaurant or any, any place, and you're going to give it to the cashier. And you're going to say, we're not going to, we're not going to, you're not going to tell anybody. But whoever comes through that that $100 bill covers, we're going to cover. And I would just like you to tell them that we would like them to know that, that, God, that God loves them. Can you, can you do that? And then they sit in the back corner, and they, and they watch. Because he wants to teach his son what the impact that happens when, when, when we are generous. And they watch this happen, and people are like, kind of looking around like, who, who did that? Who did that? I, I can't believe that my, my meal is free. And they can hear the person, the, the cashier saying, you know, someone who did this just wants you to know that God loves you. See, it's, it's not about him. It's not about his son. It's not about, it's not about them and their money and their ability. It's about who is the giver of the gift. God is. God is. Do we orient our lives? Do we orient our giving in such a way that God gets the glory? But finally, we need to be rightly motivated in what we do. See, it's, it's, it's all good to try and muster up generosity and a cheerful heart and trust God and, you know, do the right thing so that we're going in the right direction and trying to have God be, uh, get the glory. But if we are not motivated properly, it is all in vain. Verse 13 to 15 says, By their approval, by those whom you gave their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others 
while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You see, it strikes me that we could take four out of five of these and we could actually become really good legalists and think that God should smile upon us. That I have worked really hard to have open hands and an open heart and I give generously and I trust and I do it in a way that gives glory to God. But really what I'm looking for is I'm looking then for a checkbox beside my name by the Holy One of Heaven that says, well done, good and faithful servant. It is, incre- it is actually very possible that that is how we view giving. And we would see it as an act that earns favor with God and we are motivated by being seen as right in front of those around us and God himself. But that's the wrong motivation. That gets us nowhere. See, the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our generosity, the foundation of our trust and the direction we move is not based on what I do, but what has been done. If you can imagine that the God of the universe who holds every cell in your body together right now and gives you breath so that you can live and breathe and have your being, and he has lavished you with all of the things that you have, with the people in your life, with the future that you have, with the past that you can look back on, and he has given all of that to you. And your response is to say, I'm going to worship that. I'm going to hold on to my children and my vehicle and my, my retirement savings and my vacations and my health. And I'm going to worship that instead of the one who gave it. It is an act of grace that he just doesn't say, be undone and you no longer exist That instead of worshiping him, the good giver, we worship the gift. But instead, instead of him saying, you rebel, I will squish you like the insignificant thing you are. He said, I will redeem you. I will blot out your idolatry with my own son. I will remove myself of the glory that I have in heaven, that I can speak anything into existence at any point in time and do it without a thought. And I will leave that and come and be like you and be among you and struggle with what you struggle so that I can redeem you, so that he can redeem me. when we understand the radical generosity that has been granted to us through Jesus, we can then be generous. We can then find great joy in partnering with God in what he is doing in the world. 
We can trust him. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And if I, as a broken, crooked dad, can desire to give my kids good gifts, how much more can he desire to give us good gifts? Right giving is a motivated giving because of how good and gracious our Father in heaven has been. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that I can't, I can't do the things I just said here, that we can't. We can't be generous in and of ourselves. We can't be joyful in and of ourselves or trusting of you. And so I ask, God, that your spirit would come upon us. God, that we would see your goodness in Jesus and your generosity towards us. And would that flow out of us to those around us? God, would we see you as a good father who gives good gifts and who supplies for all our needs? so that we can supply for those who are around us. Oh, Jesus, would you do this in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.